Hello everyone, my name is Strangely Duesberg, and this is Pochmancier. I just wanted to take a moment to apologize to everybody for some of the audio quality quirks this week. I am recording this up in southern central Colorado, up in the mountains, and it is very windy here. So if at times you hear things like creaking floorboards and tree branches hitting the window, that is why. Uh, chapters four and five are going to be recorded today. So next week's episode will also have this caveat, but I'm hoping you still enjoy it. And uh, here we go. Borchmansier, a novel by Strangely Duesberg. Chapter four. A bookshop is a glorious place of untold wonders, stories, and possibilities, matched, some would say surpassed, by only one other kind of place. The kind of place where the stories are not written in printed letters, but in scratches, dents, and patina. A place of items both ordinary and beyond imagination. A place of trash and treasures. A place of lost things found again. A curiosity shop. There are shops beyond count pretending to this ideal, this mixture of museum and gift shop, of library and newsstand, but those that attain it are rare creatures indeed. A good curiosity shop must not be too neat. If you can determine the entire contents in a single, slow walkthrough, it lacks that special quality of surprise. If it is too cluttered, a matter of personal preference to be sure, you will never find that special treasure that's been waiting just for you. The kind of store being described is one you are doubtless already familiar with, even if only in your imagination. It is, in a sense, the physical mirror of the bookshop, the launcher of a thousand stories, the beginning of something new. All it might take to pull you into a world of adventure is to buy just the right set of cufflinks, or perhaps that dusty old writing desk. What lurks in that trunk over there? The items in such a place could be anything, or nothing, or everything, or something in the middle. Let us then assume that the manager of this particular curio shop is in all ways middling, middle-aged, middle-height, middleweight, with hair that is only gray-ish, and behavior that is placid to the point of acerbity, in every way a creature of centrism, indistinguishable from a million others by any discernible metric, every way save one. This person is a curiophile, that most rare breed of collector blessed with a nigh supernatural ability to guess more than should ever be possible about an object from a single glance and a brief touch. Most, possessed of such a talent, tend to shy away from material possessions, preferring a Spartan life with few physical objects of any consequence. The moment anything special occurs to imbue a thing with meaning beyond its most basic purposes, they fling it away, unable to bear the weight of history, even history so new. Though you have never recognized meaning such a person, you have seen the result of the somewhat confusing way in which they live. Perhaps, while passing a garbage receptacle, you notice a perfectly good cooking pot or pair of shoes. On a park bench sits a stuffed animal. In a box beside a library, a book, the spine not even cracked. These were theirs. The cars, still so new that they smell of distant factories and window cleaner, advertised for a song on an online listing. These were theirs. If you've ever wondered what sort of person would wear this once and then toss it, while browsing the racks at a thrift market, you now have your answer. Do not think these folk fastidious. Many are so incapable of owning anything of note that they take to a life on the streets, becoming the heartbreaking wanderers on the backside of civilization. But not so this curiophile. 
Here we see one fully given away to the sensory overload of old things, lost things, curious things. This is no careful mountaineer seeking one particular view. This is a mad surfer riding a monstrous wave in a hurricane, except the wave is made of lava and the hurricane is a volcano. Many would view such a thing as a kind of madness, but that does not do it justice. This is an addict, a junkie with access to an indefatigable supply of that very thing craved, a lust always slaked, and yet never quite satisfied. Should you ever be able to have a conversation about this with an orgiastic curiophile like this one, you would find their outlook strangely philosophical, a circular path of reasoning which never provides elucidation. Into this realm of teetering stacks of boxes and piles of mismatched objects strides a young man. His manner is self-assured. Here is one accustomed to getting his way in most things. He assumes today will be no different. Dressed in an outfit much too curated in its mismatched nature to be anything less than a statement of how much he does not care, the young man spends a few moments feigning interest in other items around the shop. It is only when he strides over to the counter to lay upon it a small package wrapped in cloth that he notices the clerk. The young man pauses, this briefest hesitation belying the insecurities he carries like an overstuffed rucksack. This is the moment our middle-aged curiophile moves for the first time, coughing, a gentle sound, and producing a small pair of spectacles quicker than the eye can follow. The young man starts, a deer on edge. The glass is on, the customer is examined and found unworthy of further inspection. No greater sin. The packet contains a weighty coin, larger than any in common use, the composition a mystery. The shopkeeper lays a hand upon the object. The eyes behind the glasses glaze over. A soft sigh escapes nostrils perched above frowning lips. The eyes snap open and fix upon the young man. No, thank you very much for bringing this in, but I have no interest in it. You might try down the street. The young man is confused, perhaps because of the odd halting quality of this voice. More probable, it is his own valuation of the object being considered. His irritation swells at his prize being so quickly rejected. He places a hand firmly on the counter and leans forward, perhaps thinking himself menacing. Look, this is a genuine antique. It's been in my family for generations. If he was expecting a reaction of surprise or impressed apologies, the young man gets none. The curiophile continues to smile, placid enough, but with a hint of irritation now. I'm sorry. As I told you, I have no interest in it. But it's valuable. Not to me. Can't you at least take... No. If that is all the business you have, I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Have a nice day. And with that, the young man finds himself alone at the counter, his interlocutor having disappeared into a maze of shelves and boxes leading deeper into the store. He mumbles to himself for a moment, and then snatches up the coin without bothering to wrap it again in the cloth, thrusting the entire mess into his pocket. He makes a huffy little show of leaving the shop. 
though he has no audience for his tantrum, a fact which only aggravates him more. This is ridiculous, he announces to nobody in particular. Just wait till I share this on my blog. From somewhere in the depths of the store comes an explosive chuffing noise which might be a snort of laughter. The young man can't be sure. As he reaches the door, he finds Martin entering it. The young man smiles, sighs, and shakes his head with a knowing sadness. Not worth your time. Owner's a real piece of work. Martin raises a quizzical eyebrow, but otherwise gives no indication he is listening and holds the door open with a curt half-bow. When the young man doesn't make to leave, Martin makes a minuscule sound and brushes past him into the shop, Eleanor following in his wake. Though she seems a bit more disposed to take pity on the young man, her interest in him fades when she sees what lies in the shop beyond. Now furious, he makes his way off along the sidewalk, tossing a performative oath, too loud to be natural, over his shoulder. Before he can go another step, careless in consternation, he trips over a very angry cat. Eleanor laughs as the irritated youth storms off out of sight, pursued by the cat, which does not seem to care that its quarry is a human. Martin smiles wanly. Every so often, he comes into my shop and tries to sell me the most horrendous old books. Ancient dictionaries with arcane scribblings in the margins. He won't leave them with me for appraisals. Much as it pains me, they seem so curious. His price is firm. Never changes. If he would just... Those books... You don't want them. Trust me on it. The curiophile has reappeared carrying only the faintest whiff of something which might be cigarettes. Martin chuckles and nods, as if that were the end of that. The shopkeeper glances at Eleanor. And who is this you've brought me, Martin? This is Eleanor, recently arrived from perilous perambulations and interested in small objects easily obfuscated. That's a fancy way to say... You've made a friend. They continue their sparring as Eleanor looks around, wishing her eyes could somehow grow larger. She is standing in the exact same spot so recently occupied by the haughty youth. Her interest, though, is genuine, born of a lifelong love affair with tiny objects and their possibilities. This is a good place, she thinks to herself, a place of almost as many stories as Martin's bookshop, perhaps even more. The curiophile, noting her wide-eyed manner far quicker than Martin had, looks her up and down and says, It is the fifteenth year of the Zhengnu. I am walking along a river and arrive at a town. There is an inn. I wish to pay for a room for... The night. Might you have something with which I can do that? Martin looks up from the cracked diary he has begun to leaf through, this approval written on his face. It is clear he finds this question impertinent. Eleanor, however, is delighted. She turns to face the curiophile, curtsies in an elaborate fashion while also unbuttoning her coat and spreads her hands wide. Almost unable to contain her excitement, she begins. Through the dark times after the great waves of horse lords, many inns would accept various currencies. Her right hand, apparently empty, flickers, 
revealing three different coins, a small dark stone, and what looks like a lump of gold roughly in the shape of a pyramid. Eleanor's smile becomes mysterious. Without taking her eyes off of the curio dealer, she sidles toward Martin. But you know that any place accepting various currencies is wont to favor certain ones over others, much as I suspect Martin here accepts just about anything his bank will change. Martin starts, Eleanor's joke more accurate than she could ever know. She waves her hand, the coins and stones disappear. Mr. De Winter, surely you didn't think it above my notice that your till contained not one, but five different currencies? She now leans toward the curiophile, her air conspiratorial. As widely traveled as I am, I've not even seen them all, though I'm sure you know a thing or two about money. Now, where was I? Ah, yes, not all currencies are equal in all places, and for the end of which you speak, I can only imagine one such currency to be the best. As she says this last, she reaches up and tousles a stray lock of Martin's hair, deftly catching the small coin that falls out. It is all for show, of course, and all three of them know it. But this is the way of such things. Eleanor has been given an opportunity to share her peculiar skill, one she intends not to waste. Eleanor tosses the coin, which appears to have a hole through the center, to the curiophile, who catches it in one hand, remaining stationary otherwise. A moment of silence passes. The coin is considered, rolled across deft fingers, then placed upon the counter to be bent over in scrutiny. Martin is frozen. It has been close to a decade since anyone has purposefully touched him in any way except a business-like handshake, and even these he tries to avoid. He finds himself wanting to be somewhere very far away. Clinging to an icy, unassailable alp by nothing but his fingernails would be acceptable. He considers the feeling and shakes it off. How would she know? Her gesture is clearly an old one associated with parlor tricks. Coming back to the present, Martin is startled to see the look of wide-eyed surprise on the face behind the counter. A strange emotion to see on a countenance disposed to taciturnity. This is... The curiophile considers. This is genuine. Eleanor nods and says something in a language Martin doesn't understand, let alone recognize. The curiophile shakes a grayish head ever so slightly. I'm sorry. I don't speak the language. I'm just enamored with the artifacts. Personal preference. You understand. Of course. I take it that this is the best answer to the question, then? Her query is met with a pause and then a nod. She has provoked a good deal of thought. You'll have to forgive my surprise. I've not encountered a pushmancier, let alone a good one. In quite some time, there was this American fellow. The look on Eleanor's face is a confusing mixture of nostalgia and revulsion, but the shadow is quickly gone. Yes, couldn't stand him. He was asking to buy the oldest coin I have. I tried to explain that such a request is a 
matter of personal opinion as anything older than three millennia is hotly contested anyway. By the by, I am curious, what is the oldest thing you carry? Eleanor holds out both of her hands, suddenly producing a small card and a hat pin. She pricks her fingertip and holds it against the card for a moment. When the blood stops flowing, a sizable red flower has seeped into the card. Eleanor appears to swallow the pin, and then she proffers the card. Depending on who you talk to, certain sequences in our DNA go back billions of years, if not more. A matter of personal opinion would be a good way to put it. Martin is unprepared for what happens next. The curiophile's head tips back as his middle-aged colleague roars with laughter. Tears are streaming down the artifact seller's face, and soon all three are in stitches. Martin, his discomfort forgotten, recovers his composure first. You know, Adlon, I was sure you'd like her. I didn't think you'd be charmed so easily, though. On the contrary, my dear boy. <gasps> Adlon wheezes. You are standing in the presence of, in my humble opinion, the greatest living pockets man. Pardon the misgenderizationaling, my dear. I am Adlon Mortimer. It's a pleasure to meet you. Adlon proffers a hand which Eleanor shakes, smiling. She feels herself blushing. She is used to attention and praise for her work, but this is something else. This accolade comes from one who actually knows what she is. She bows, hoping they won't notice the color in her cheeks. Her eyes fall upon the card she's just pressed her blood into. A lichen size to a standard business card, except it only has printing on half of it. Parts of the words missing, obscured by holes cut through the card. Eleanor is a master of organization, keeping a catalog of the nearly 2,000 items that inhabit the various pockets of her coat. And yet she has never seen this card before. How has it found its way into her pocket? She stows the card, planning to examine it in more detail later, and returns her attention to her new friends. Adlon stands up. Well, I'd say it's five o'clock somewhere to the pub. Brilliant, Martin shouts, just a bit too excited. He needs a drink. He leaps to flip around Adlon's little card in the door, instead of... You might as well try. Adlon's open message, it now reads, Go away. I probably don't have it anyway. Adlon reaches up behind the counter and flips a gigantic switch downward, looking so much like a horror film assistant that Eleanor almost starts laughing again. Almost. The entire shop goes dark. Somewhere in the depths, a whirring thing spins itself out. They are almost out the door when Martin turns to Adlon. Don't you have to close out your till? That's the beauty. I've had no sales all day. So why not close up early? The curiophile chuckles, tapping the side of a surprisingly well-formed nose and pointing at Martin with the other hand. 
Martin mirrors the gesture, and the two chuckle knowingly as they spill out into the street. The pair has become a happy trio. <laughs> wow. I did not foresee it being as difficult as it was to record at 6,000 feet of elevation. My entire like diaphragm system and everything that I use to talk and speak long sentences without taking a breath is completely gone. So hopefully in the edit, this will all come together and sound really good. If not, uh, I guess I could always go back and do like a remastered edition of this, the Strangely Deucebird Special Edition. Uh, as always, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at I am Strangely. Go to strangelyandfriends.com to find out more about me. You can find my music at strangely.bandcamp.com. And uh, find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangely. A little announcement. I'm having an album release show slash party slash hootenanny slash get together slash whatever you want to call it at the Honeymoon in Bellingham, Washington on May 5th. If you're a fan of this podcast and some of the music that you've heard through it, uh, come on down and say hey. I would love to see you. yeah also send me a note if you're enjoying this podcast or if there's things you think should be different about it maybe i shouldn't be so close to the mic or i should be farther away or maybe you'd like to see more of certain characters or not so uh i'm really excited to make more for you so once again from the depths of my heart thank you so much for listening to this little show of mine we'll be back next week for chapter five in which alcohol is consumed and a telephone call is made.